You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church of Savannah. If you would like to find out more information about our church, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Right. I'm going to take you back, some of you, to a fearful time. I've done this before. This is kind of the life I live. But take you back to that elementary school playground. For some of you, that's a nightmare, I know. You're the kid that stayed inside in red, all right? I, I get you. But remember, my favorite class was PE. Close second was lunch. So that recess time, that was my game, right, as an ex-PE teacher. Um, and you would go out, and, and remember these days, I don't think they do this anymore, but you go out and, and you would pick teams. I know it's kind of not politically correct these days because we don't want to pick anybody, but trust me, I, I feel your pain. Staff plays basketballs on Monday often with a bunch of other churches. Who in our staff do you think gets picked first? <laughs> it ain't me. Who's the last one picked when we do church basketball? Fowler. All right, so I feel the pain of being last. Okay, I get it. But so you go out into the kickball field, the soccer field, the dodgeball field, whatever. And if you were fortunate enough to be the captain, you knew who, exactly who you were going to pick. Right? Or if you were not the captain, you were hoping with all your might that you would get on that one guy's team, that one gal's team, because you knew that whoever's team they were on, they win. Just by the nature of them being present on that team, they win. For me, I've told you before, he's kind of burned into my memory. It's a guy named Ted Starius. I Googled him this week to see if I could find him. I found him. He's still killing it. He's like, a, he's like the principal of some charter school, you know, some massive charter school, still getting picked first. And then I looked at him, hoping that he'd be like, you know, overweight or something, you know, just thinking, okay, maybe he grew up to be just like not, no, he's like 6'5 and like fit and runs like triathlons. I'm like, see, this is unfair, right? <laughs> he's still winning, right? But we as followers of Jesus, what I want to talk about today is that we have a difference maker on our team. But here's the difference. You didn't pick him. He chose you before the foundation of the world, that you would be his, that you would be adopted, that you would be his child. And he's put you on his team, and that makes a difference. And so what I want to talk about today is like, what's, what difference does that make? Because we talk a lot about in the church, Jesus is with us, Jesus is with us, right? He makes this great promise, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. So he promises us that. But I think that's Christianese for some of us. I really do. I think we just say that because we've heard it and that's great. I don't think we know what that means, right? And so what I wanna do today is I wanna talk about what does it mean, God with us? Now, not everything it means because I don't have time for that. But just some implications from our study, because we're going to be introduced to a new judge today, a guy named Gideon, and God's going to put him on his team, and that's going to make all the difference. And the same difference that it makes for his life is the same difference it makes for the people of God now's life. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Judges chapter 6. If you don't, it's going to be on the screen uh, behind us. We have been in a series on Judges, for those who are new, and, and this is the period of Israel's history. It's, it's actually a large period of the Old Testament history, about 350 years, and it kind of starts when Joshua has led the people in the land. He kinda, they go in for about seven years and do some initial groundwork, and then Joshua dies. That's when the pick of, book of Judges picks up, and it goes for 350 years all the way to the first monarch, the first king, uh, King Saul. 
So it's that period of history where there is no king in Israel and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so we've entitled this series, Everyone Needs a King. Right? And what God has been trying to get his people to see is that he is a good king. He's worth following. He is worthy of their, their listening to and doing what he says. And so we've seen different judges uh, do different things. And we've seen this cycle that has constantly come up, right, where the people sin, they rebel against God. Then God brings a nation in and they're, they're slaves, their servitude for a season, 20 years, 7 years, 18 years. They, they cry out to God in their sorrow, please save us. And God raises up a judge in salvation for them. And they stay, things stay good as long as that judge stays alive. And as soon as that judge dies, it just goes. Last week, we finished up Deborah, right? And, and she brought peace for 40 years, right? But as can be expected, it, she, the people forget. And so let's jump in to our text and just kind of see how this, how this deal works again as the cycle continues. Verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Shocker, right? Shocker. Uh, and the Lord gave them into the hand of the Midian. The Midian is a, actually a cousin of, of the Hebrews. Uh, Abraham, remember Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. One of those sons was Midian, right? And so they're technically related, but God gives them into the hand of the Midianites for seven years, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and caves and the strongholds. So it gets so bad, they can't live in their houses anymore. They got to kind of go to Helm's Deep, right? For those of you nerds, some of you nerds get that. Others need to read classic literature. They have to hide in the mountains. They have to hide in the caves. They cannot live where they normally live for seven years. And the Midianites did things a little bit different, okay? So whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, they were Bedouins, they would come from south, and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them, they'd encamp against them, and they'd devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or oxen or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in numbers. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste to the land as they come. So the idea is there, there's hundreds of thousands of them. And it, and it uses this idea of locusts. They would come in, and here's kind of the area from, the, from where the Midianites were. They're actually way down here, almost Egypt. And they would get on their camels. You think camels aren't really intimidating. Camels were like tanks back then. They could go a long way. You don't have to give them any gas, right? Because they got all the water stored up. And they were super fast. So they bring their hundreds of thousands of people. They come in right when the, when the harvest starts. So right when the, the Walmart truck pulls up and they just take everything. And then they go back. And Israel is left hungry, destitute, broken. Right? And so finally, they cry out to God. Right? The people are very low. And the people of Israel cried out. So there, there we are on that cycle. And what we expect to read is they cried out to God and he raised up a savior. That's not exactly what happens. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people. So they want a savior. He's going to give them a sermon. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave them into the land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. It's not exactly what they're looking for. Right? They're not looking for a sermon. It's kind of like someone comes to you and says, man, things are hard. Don't have any money. Could you help me pay my power bill? And you say, let's, let's go listen to some Dave Ramsey. <laughs> it's not really what I want. 
right? But see, here's, here's the thing. God's gonna send a deliverer, but what God wants is their heart. He wants them to see that the problem is not the Midianites. The problem is y'all. So he wants their hearts. He wants them to see that he is this king that is worth loving and following, right? And he wants to get their attention. But yet he's gonna move. And you don't actually see in this passage the people respond, which is beautiful. God just starts moving. God doesn't wait for them to start moving towards him. He moves towards them, which is exactly what our God does in his grace, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So God raises up his judge. Now here's the scene, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came. Now understand, we, what you're gonna see is this angel of the Lord is no ordinary angel. We're gonna see a few verses later, this is actually God, God himself. So the angel of the Lord came and he sat under the terebinth or the tree at Oprah. And he says, everyone gets a car. Right, no, you didn't say that. <laughs> Wrong Oprah, all right? What he said, which this tree belongs to Joash, the Abizarite, which while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So here's the scene. God comes as the angel of the Lord, and I don't know if he sneaks up or whatever, but he comes and sits by this tree, just kind of silently. Meanwhile, this, this man named Gideon is beating out wheat in the wine press. Now, I know that most of you, your hobby is threshing wheat on the weekends, so you don't need me to explain this, but that's not normally, for those who don't know, that's not normally how you, how you do this. Normally, here's actually a picture of a wine press uh, an ancient wine press, uh, I mean, not a wine press, a, a threshing floor. A threshing floor would be in a large open place, right? And you'd have some oxen and they'd, be, they'd have this sledge and a big old pile of wheat and they would they'd kind of grind it up and it would separate the wheat from the chaff and they'd have some dudes kind of with the pitchforks and they'd be throwing it up in the air and the wheat would fall to the ground and the, the wind would take the chaff away and at the end you have this big pile of wheat. So it was a big public thing, it was a big form. Here's Gideon. Right? Gideon is doing it in a wine press, which is typically low in the ground, and he's got just enough that he can kind of do it in his hand. That's how desperate it is in Israel. And so he's got a little wheat in his hand, he's all like, and you can just kind of see his head peep up. He's looking around, because he doesn't want the Midianites to know, and he kind of sneaks back down. And here's God over here, just watching the scene. Like, look at that guy down there. That, it's, it's, it's just com almost comical. Not as comical, though, what happens next. So he's been silent. All of a sudden, he breaks the silence. The angel of the Lord says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And then you, you just picture Gideon like, where'd you come from? And, and then he looks around, mighty man of valor. This is a term in the Old Testament that used, it's used of warriors, right? It's used of generals, of guys who go into battle and, and conquer that's not this guy. And so Gideon's like, I think you got the wrong wine press, bro. <laughs> who, who are you talking to? Right? It's, it's a joke. Right? It, it, I can appreciate that, but I think you're, you're two doors down. But here, here's the idea here. And here's, the, here's probably the biggie on the eye chart. If you're going to fall asleep today and you don't hear anything else, Here's kind of what, the big point of what I want you to see about this text. It's the first idea of what difference does God's presence make in our lives? Is that God's presence transforms us. It, it actually transforms us. See, God does not see Gideon for what he is right now. He sees Gideon for what he is going to make him. 
as he steps into his life, as he transforms him. See, when God calls us, he doesn't see us, he doesn't define us by but necessarily what we are, but what he wants to make us in Christ. Because we all come and we're just like a mess. We're a train wreck. We've got all these issues and God doesn't see us like that. He sees us what I am going to do through you and in you by my spirit, how I'm gonna make you into be more like Christ. See, that is a big, that's a big deal, right? That's a big deal. That's why Paul says, if any man is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. God is in the business of transforming his people by his spirit. And so this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. We, now remember, Corinth is a mess. Corinth is a bunch of a sinful folks. But he says, we, this is all of us, with unveiled fails, we're beholding the glory of the Lord, and we're what? We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit is the presence of God in his people since Pentecost. I'm gonna be with you always, even to the end of the age. How is Jesus with us always when right now he's sitting on the throne in heaven? He's with us because his Spirit is with us. And the Spirit does what? It transforms us. That's what God's presence does. See, what God sees in Gideon and in us is what we don't see. He, want, he sees what I'm going to do through you. I, what I'm going to do, maybe five years, maybe 10 years, maybe 15 years, but he sees that. He sees what we can become because of his presence. Gideon is not a valiant warrior, not at this point. Gideon's never done anything valiant in his life in his, at this point, right? Gideon is not called by God because he is valiant. He becomes valiant because he is called by God. And see, this is what God does. He, he sees what people can become after I step in, after I move into their lives. And so he sees Abram, who's 99 years old and has no kids, and he says, okay, we're gonna change your name to Abraham, which means father of many. He, but I'm childless, yeah. But see, when I step in, that's what I'm gonna do. He sees Peter and says, you're, you're not gonna be Simon anymore. You're gonna be the rock. Not Dwayne Johnson, the rock. But you're gonna be the rock, right, of this church. You're, you're gonna be one that your testimony is gonna build, right? You're gonna lead your brothers. He sees Saul, who is a persecutor, and says, this is my chosen instrument. He's gonna stand before kings. He's gonna stand before queens and bear my name. He sees us, and he says, you're saints. Now, I can tell you, most of y'all ain't saintly. But God says, no, you're a saint, right? Because this is what I'm gonna make you. This is what I'm transforming. And what I want you to see is that God wants to transform his people. And he does it by his spirit, by his presence. He has placed something in you that, that has given you great potential to do great things for his name. Not famous, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Not famous per se, but to do great things for his name and he's put it in you. And this is not self-help, put it, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that's not that. That's why the order of the text is significant. He doesn't say, oh mighty warrior, I am with you. He says, I am with you. Result, oh mighty valiant warrior. That's significant. God wants to transform his people. So maybe you in this room, you struggle with telling the truth, i.e. you're a liar. You got all these little hidden things. You got these hidden, you know, you got 16 finstas with different things because you know your parents know the first three but they don't know the last 13. And you're a sneak and you're this and you're that. God wants to transform you as someone who is deceiving to be 
to be someone who is actually trustworthy, who's speaking truth. Or, or maybe you struggle with immorality or lust of some kind, and God wants to, t- to take that, and he wants to transition you to and transform you into someone who is pure in your relationships, that, that guards his eyes, guards her eyes. Maybe you're greedy or selfish. It's all about you. God wants to transform you into someone who is generous and giving. Maybe like some of, some of us, and this is probably most of us, it's not all of us, maybe you're a little bit of a fraud and a fake. I mean, we're all hypocrites in some sense. And, and you, you're faking it all. Everyone thinks everything is perfect, but really you're a train wreck inside. Or maybe everyone thinks you're this and you're that. And God wants to take you from being a fraud and a hypocrite to being an authentic, open, sharing struggles, sharing battles with other people because he knows it's gonna impact other people. Maybe you're a worrier, you're anxious. He wants to make you someone who can, you can trust. Maybe you're bitter, angry. He wants to give you peace, right? Whatever it is, maybe you just lose your temper all the time. He wants to make you the kind of person that can drive under Ren and be fine. <laughs> but see, what I want you to see is God wants to transform his people. He is in the transformation business. He is in the new creation business, and he does it by his presence, by his spirit. And sometimes that takes time. We'd like it to be faster. It takes Gideon in this, ta- in this chapter three times for him to get what God is saying. So God is patient. Three times God's gonna have to say, I'm gonna be with you, I'm gonna be with you, I'm sending you, I'm sending you, and Gideon's like, uh, every time. So God is patient, but he wants to transform us, and he wants us to be more like Christ. That's what his presence does. It's big. That's why he says, I'll be with you always. All right? That's one of the benefits of having God with us. All right? Well, Gideon's not convinced yet, so let's keep reading. Verse 13. And Gideon said, please, Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? Where have all his wonderful deeds that his fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us in the hand of Midian. What's, who's he blaming there? He's blaming God. Problem, God is like, problem, sir, because he doesn't know who he is. The problem, sir, is I, as far as I can see, is either God is not strong enough to deal with the Midianites or God has just left us, right? So we do a, we do a good job of this, too, is we can identify the, the pain. We can identify what's going on, but we don't always get, we can't connect the dots to the source. See, this is, he's saying this is God's fault. It's God's deal. He, he's not doing his part. Right? And, and for those of us who have children, we see this all the time, right? You, you know, you, something, something as simple as shoes or socks. Apparently, in this world, on the FBI's most wanted list, there is a shoe bandit who likes to sneak into your house and, put, and steal shoes, apparently, because when you say, where's your shoes? I don't know. I put them right there. But they're not there anymore. Someone must have taken them. That's right. The shoe bandit came and took them. But then we find out that the shoe bandit left one upstairs and one in the garage, because that's just what the shoe bandit does, right? Do you have a shoe bandit or a sock bandit in your house? Because we have them. We have two of them. But the idea that we can't connect the dots, no, you really didn't put your shoe there. You took one off and went like that, and you walked upstairs with one, and then you went like that. That's what happened. That's connecting the dots. Gideon can't connect the dots, and so he blames God, and God in his grace, then here's where we find out that God is actually the one he's talking to. Verse 14, notice it says the Lord, and see how it's capital letters, 
That means it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God. So we're not talking to just a mere angel. This is God himself, who Gideon has just accused of abandoning. Okay? Without knowing he's talking to God. It's kind of like that show. Remember that show where the bosses, the CEOs go into their you know, restaurants and everyone talks smack about the CEO and they're like talking to the CEO, right? It's kind of that, except this is God, not a CEO. Right? And so the Lord turns to him. I love that he's turning to him. And I, it's just one of those, I think, those looks. Like, excuse me. But here's what he says. Gideon's like, what is God? God's not doing anything. Why is God not doing anything? And he says, I am doing something. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? He says, I am doing something. Go. You got all you need. And then all of a sudden, Gideon all of a sudden, it's all, oh, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm, I'm the least in my father's house. The word Lord there is not necessarily, he doesn't know God yet. Notice it's not capital letters. It's just the, the Hebrew word Adonai. It's just a general term of respect. So he still doesn't know he's talking to God. He's like, I, who, I, I can't do that. I got no skills. I got no nunchuck skills. I got no bow staff skills. I got no skills. Right? I'm just a nobody from an, I'm a real nowhere man sitting in his real nowhere land. You know, I, I got nothing. All right? I'm the least in my father's house. What he's saying is, I, I'm not adequate. I don't have what I need. I love verse 16. And the Lord said to him, and, and if, you have, if you have the ESV, I think New American Standard, it has that English word, but. You know, it's a key word. The NIV and some of the other translations smooth it out, but it's in the Hebrew because the idea is, yes, I know. You are a nobody. You got no skills. But I will be with you. So you are inadequate. You are a nobody, right? You're all good. You all hiding there, sitting you know, in the little, in the little jacuzzi down there. But here's what you don't get, Gideon. You may be inadequate, but I'm not. Right? So go. And here's a second big thing that God's presence, that God's spirit in his church does. God's presence makes us adequate. It makes us adequate. It doesn't make things easy, but it makes us adequate. Because how often are we staring at things in our life that we're like, I can't do that. I don't, I don't got nothing for that. I'm inadequate, right? And what God is, is speaking through his word to you this morning, and it's throughout the entire of the scripture, is yes, but I am enough. And so you're a stay-at-home mom and you got three kids and they're all under six and you are sick of diapers and you are sick of formula and you are sick of three hours sleeping and you are tired and weary and you don't know if you can do one more week of this. Right? One more trip to Sam's, one more putting kids in the car seat, spilling milk in the back, minivan smelling like a, like a trash heap. I hear you. And you, you're wondering if this season is ever gonna end. And what, what God's presence and his spirit in you says is, yes, it's not easy, but I am enough. You're gonna make it, right? You're in a challenging financial season and it's already tight and all of a sudden, boom, Transmission blows. Boom. Uh, two tires. Got to replace two tires. Boom. Surgery that you weren't expecting. Right? We've all been there. And what God's presence reminds us is, yes, but I'm enough. 
and I take care of the birds. I'm gonna take care of your tires, right? Take care of that. Right, you got this huge project at work. The entire company is looking at you, and it's a huge multi-thousands, million-dollar deal, and it all's resting on you. Or maybe it's you're looking forward to a semester, and this is going to be a challenging semester, or I got to take the MCAT or the LSAT or some other fancy test that I don't know what they are, but they sound important. And you're like, I don't know how, I don't have to get this scored. I don't know. And you're just burdened, and you can't sleep. And what God's presence constantly does, it reminds us, is if I've called you to this, I'm enough. Right? Got to move again. Family's got to move again. Another deployment. Another this. Got to find new schools. Got to find new doctors. Got to find new community group. Got to find new church. Got to do all these things. I don't even know if we can do this again. And he's saying, I am enough. Hate your job. Hate your boss. Never enough for him. You never do a good enough job. He says, I am enough. Not sure I can forgive that person. Not sure I can release that. Not sure I can, can go on and, and with this conflict in our, our marriage. I just want to quit. I'm so sick of fighting for this marriage. And Jesus says, I am enough. Right? That his spirit makes us adequate. Doesn't make it easy. I'm not saying it's going to be easy peasy. But what I am saying is when God says, I am with you, it says, I am enough. And this is what he does constantly through the scripture. He always affirms people that have challenging things ahead of them with, I am with you. I am enough. Right? Jacob wants to, he's telling Jacob to go back into the land. His brother Esau wants to kill him. And Jacob's nervous. He says, everybody wants to kill me. My brother wants to kill me. I did all these things to him. He says, I will be with you. Go. Moses says, I can't leave all these people. I don't know how to speak. I, don't know. I will be with your mouth. Joshua's like, I don't know how to follow Moses. He was too great of a leader. I will be with you like I was with Moses. Nehemiah's got to build the wall. I am with you. Daniel's got to stand and, and stand up to the king. What is, what is God end up doing? He's with him in the lion's den. Shaq, Rabbi, Misha, and Abednego. He's with him in the fire. Paul is in Corinth and everyone's opposing him. God says, keep preaching. They're not listening to me. Keep preaching. I am with you. Jesus' disciples, us. Go make disciples. All nations. I am with you. God's presence makes us adequate. Right? And I love that God affirms that for him. Because sometimes we doubt it, right? He affirms it three different times. He's about to give a miracle to affirm it. He's standing there speaking to him. And, and next, two weeks from now, we're going to see he affirms it again. When, when Gideon's still nervous, he says, go down, go down and listen by that little tent down there. And he hears this dream that, that God gives this mini night, like, we're going to get smoked by the, by the Jews. He affirms, constantly affirming his presence. Right? And I think, he's, you know, I think he still does that. And I'm not saying we should be praying for a miracle or anything like that, like he's saying, uh, for a sign. But God, if we look and if we're sensitive, is constantly sending us reminders, I'm still there. And maybe you're just in the car and you're just breaking down and it's just that, that, that song comes on that just you needed to hear to remind you. <clears throat> That, that, that's a truth that I needed to hear. Or maybe you're struggling and, and that friend calls you just the right time to remind you, hey, I love you. Or maybe it's a, a sermon or a lesson or you're open your Bible that day and you're just, you just, just feel empty and it's that one verse that's like, you do the Holy Spirit flip, which I don't usually advise, but just the, you do the Holy Spirit flip and you point to a verse and it just happens to be a verse that super speaks to your soul. You just needed to hear or maybe you're just walking and just crying out to the Lord and just have an overwhelming sense of his presence. I don't know, but God is constantly affirming to us. 
in different ways, through his church, through his word, that he is with us. He's enough, right? He's enough. It's huge for us, right? Let's continue on. He's still, he's still a little bit doubtful, right? And so he says to him, God, if I found favor in your eyes, show me a sign that it is you. Because he's, he's kind of figuring it out now. If this is really you, and I found favor, and that's actually the Hebrew word that we translate grace. If I found grace in your eyes, then show me a sign that's you who speak with me. Please don't depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And God, again, in his patience says, I'll stay. I, I mean, I'm just kind of running the universe here, but sure, I'm on your schedule, right? <laughs> right. So, so Gideon runs off, right? And he went into his house and he prepared a young goat. Like, I don't know how long it takes to prepare a young goat, but I'm pretty sure it's not popping in the microwave. 30 seconds on high heat, right? This is some time. Find the goat, kill the goat, cook the goat. I'm sure you gotta cook it for at least 45 minutes to get it to 165 degrees temperature in the middle, right? So, and then he gets some unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. That's, a, that's like 30 to 40 pounds of flour. That's a big cake. It's a big old cake. He's gotta bake the big old cake. He's gotta kill the goat. And there's, there's God just waiting for him. How patient is, is God with him? So he puts the meat in the basket, the broth in a pot, and you can just kind of see him all like bringing this stuff under the tree and he presents it to him. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes, put them on this rock, pour the broth over them. And so he does it. And the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand. And I, I almost, the way I kind of see it, I see him looking at Gideon, taking the stick, not even looking at it, being like, poof. And it all of a sudden just catches fire and it burns it up. And if that's not enough, then all of a sudden he's still looking at him and poof, the angel of the Lord vanishes from his sight, right? Disappears. And this is when Gideon realizes, uh-oh. This is not, I've not just been talking to a normal dude under the tree. Gideon perceived he was the angel of the Lord and he said, oh snap. <laughs> Alas, oh Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He's like, I'm gonna die. I've seen God, I am going to die. But the Lord said to him, peace, peace. Remember, he had found favor, he had found grace. The irony is he wanted God's assurance that he was with him, now he got it, and now he's terrified. But he says, peace. And so Gideon built an altar there to the Lord, he called it the Lord is peace, shalom, Yahweh shalom. And it still stands in Oprah to that day, whenever this was written a couple hundred years later. And so he builds a reminder that's still there a couple hundred years later to remind them Yahweh is peace. He's, he's shalom. And here's the third thing, third great, great idea about God's presence is that God's presence brings peace. Peace, not absence of conflict, not absence of trouble, not everything's gonna go good circumstances, the idea of peace is, is contentment and harmony and wellness despite whatever's going on out there, in the midst of whatever's going on. This is what Jesus says. This is the night before Jesus is, is gonna be killed. And he says this to the disciples. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. There's God's presence, right? There's the presence peace. And he's gonna bring to remembrance all I've said to you. And then look what happens. There's the presence of the Holy Spirit. Peace, I leave you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives. 
Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not, not be afraid. There's going to be conflict. He's already told them. There's going to be tribulation, but I give you my peace by my spirit. It's not being troubled in the midst of whatever is going on. That's the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. See, God, God's presence brings Gideon. God's presence brings us peace. And it's that, I, I, I picture it as that idea where, where, you know, my kids were little and we're at the playground. They constantly just look it over their shoulder just to make sure dad and mom are there. Right? Or they do something and they look over and dad and mom are always, we're still here. And it's as if God's people can look over their shoulder and see, yeah, he's still there. And it says, Jesus saying, no one can snatch you out of my hand. And my father who is greater than all, is, no one is able to snatch you out of his hand. I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's peace in the midst of chaos. And this idea is constantly through the scripture, y'all. You can go to almost every New Testament book and you see this idea, God of peace, God of peace. Jesus, in, in, um, in John chapter 20, right, he, this is the day he's resurrected, he comes to the disciples and he says, I'm gonna send you out, but I'm bringing you, giving you peace. The end of the book of Romans, he's called the God of all peace is what? With you. Right? Philippians says, practice these things. The God of peace is with you. Second Corinthians says, rejoice. Live, comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. These things constantly go together. I love Second Thessalonians. It says, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. And then look, the Lord be with you all. You see how peace and God's presence go hand in hand? Constantly through scripture. Peace. Peace. And so we, we, we come to that. And, and so when the doctor says, I don't know, I don't know what it is, we can say, but I have peace because here's God, right? When the boss says, you know, bad, bad quarter, potential cutbacks, we say, I can have peace, Right? When the world around us is raging and angry and talking about this and that and politics and how we, all these things, and we think, what a mess. And we look at, we look at the abortion debacle in our country and how, it just, how devastating that is and, and the view of marriage and all these things. And, we, and the Christians get, tend to get, just get on Facebook and get mad at each other. Instead, we should say, we have peace. Right? God knows what he's doing. God is gonna redeem this somehow, Right? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Am I supposed to take that job? I got three opportunities. I don't know, should we move? Should we buy that house? Should we buy that car? And we, could, we don't have to worry because God is with us and we can have peace. We'll talk more about that next week. Things are not fair, been treated unfairly, accused. We can have peace, peace. The idea of God's presence, it brings peace, right? In tangible ways, peace. God's presence, it transforms us. God's presence, it makes us adequate. God's presence, it brings peace. All right, and Gideon finally, I think, is starting to get it. So look at verse 25. That night, now that he knows that God's with him, God has a little job for him, all right? So that night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull, and the second bull is seven years old. By the way, that stood out to me this week as I was studying this. When your God knows how old your pet is, See, that's a guy that I can trust. <laughs> take the bull and take the seven-year-old bull and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. Here's what we find out, that there's actually a Baal altar in Gideon's backyard, and his dad seems to be the local priest, right? And cut it down and cut the Asherah. Remember, Asherah is Baal's girlfriend, 
right? And so they got the statues together and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold. Y'all, this is a big deal. You think, oh, it's, you know, it's no big deal. His dad is probably the priest of Baal. And so God says, I want you to tear down that and then I want you to basically set it on fire. So I want you to tear down your dad's thing and then I want you to burn his pickup truck, basically, right? Take the second bull, offer it as a burnt offering with the wood and the Asherah. That's, that's a pretty significant deal, <laughs> right? Because who's gonna be mad at him besides everyone else? His dad, his dad. Verse 27, so Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. Here's what I love about this verse. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of town to do it by day, he did it at night. See, if it said, so Gideon got right up right in the middle of the day and started hacking away at that thing and be like, how you like them apples and started doing that? I can't relate to that because I'm scared sometimes and I'm nervous and I'm timid. And when I see a guy who God has called and empowered and he's still timid, now I can relate to that. I can identify with that. But God's not mad. God doesn't call down from heaven, thou art chicken, Gideon. <laughs> right? All he said was do it. He didn't say how, when. And you know what? If that's all you got, Gideon, that's enough. All you got is five loaves and two fish. I can work with that. So Gideon does it. Right? And see, here's what is big. Fear is a huge cause for disobedience in us. What are my friends going to think? What are my parents going to think? What is my boss going to think? It's a huge deterrent in obeying God. And here's what God's presence does. God's presence helps us obey. Even when we don't know the results. Even though we don't know what's going to happen after that. God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of what? Of power and love and a sound mind or, or discipline. Right? So here, here's, here's the reality. God has some, some of you, he has things out there that, that you may get a glimpse of now, but you may not know that, that down the road that, that God has these great things that he's going to accomplish, right? And you may have little, little glimpses of it, but when that big thing comes one day, if you haven't been taking little steps of obedience towards that, you will miss that big thing. Right? Because we all say, oh, we'll do the big thing, but we don't do the little thing. No, we get to the big thing. Gideon's big thing's coming in two weeks when he's going to take 300 men with flashlights and a kazoo and fight 135,000 men. No sword. That's a big thing. And he's going to look back at this little deal and be like, that was nothing. It was big in the time. But when he's going down there, like, I got a flashlight, what am I supposed to do against 135,000? I got 300 dudes. They're crazy, all 300 of them. See, that's big. But he never would have got to this point if he didn't step out in little faith here. And some of you, let me, let me talk to high school students. Some of you want to get married one day. That's awesome. It's a great thing. You need to start making choices now, little steps of obedience, of purity, of how you handle your social media, of how you do these little things, how you treat your parents, and how, and how you treat your teachers, See, these things are gonna come back when you have a boss. You think, oh, one day I'll get out and I'll be in charge. You'll never be in charge. Until you're God, which you never will be, you'll never be in charge, right? And, and these little steps of obedience, you wanna get married so that your purity now is going to affect that marriage one day. And there's grace for failures, but it just will. And so little steps of obedience get to those big steps down the road. You wanna have a job one day. 
right? So you got to work hard now. You want to be the owner of your own company. You're a boss. So you're being faithful now in these little things God has you doing. All of us, right? You want to be, right now you need to be leading in the little context that God has you, whether you're a man or a woman. Because one day God's down the road, he's got this, this, this bit, bigger leader capacity for you where you're going to be, you're going to be an elder or you're going to be a deacon or you're going to, you're going to have your company, you're going to lead a community group, you're going to do all, whatever it is, you're going to be a dad, you're going to be a grandfather. But you take these little steps of obedience now empowered by the spirit of God in you that leads to that bigger thing, right? And we always want the bigger thing, but we start with the little thing. And here's the bigger idea. Start in your backyard. Start dealing with the idols in your backyard. He's got to deal with the idols in his backyard before he goes and gets Midian, right? And he's got idols in his backyard. And so do we. And so we start at home. Don't worry about the government. Don't worry about your neighbor. Don't worry about them down the road, your person in your community group. You start dealing with the idols in my heart and then we can go fight Midian, right? That's what God does. Right? That's what God does. His spirit, his presence helps us to do that. And it affirms us and it prepares us for what's down the road. Right? And you never know. I'm telling you, I never, I didn't, coming out of high school, have any clue what I was going to do with my life. I just know I didn't want to sit in office. Right? So I, you know, I go to the Citadel. I don't even know how I got to the Citadel. I just woke up one day and they're yelling at me. I don't even know what happened there. But through all these little decisions that I made, God equipped me for now what I'm doing now. And that's what he does. And I wasn't even a Christian when all that was happening. God is equipping his people. He's preparing his people for what's next. But we need to respond. We need to follow. His spirit enables us to do that. It's big, right? Right, God's, God's presence does. And so here's Gideon. He goes and does it. And everyone wakes up and they're mad. Because every time, just, just know, when you follow God, not everybody is happy. Okay, just so you know. I know, you know, if you do that, God, everyone's going to love you. Wrong. They killed Jesus. All right, so they're not always going to like you. So the men of the town rose early in the morning, and behold, the altar of Baal was broken down. The asher besides it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar. It had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? Do a little CSI Oprah. Right? And it, surely one of his boys sold him out. I don't know which one. Hank. I told you to keep your mouth shut, right? Whatever. Somebody sells him out and they said, Gideon. Gideon did it. Son of Joash. And the men said, bring out your son that he may die for he has broken down the altar. This is a big, this is a big moment for Gideon. Gideon steps out. He obeys God. And now his life is in danger. Is God going to come through? What's God going to do? God does something amazing. The person that he was most terrified of, probably, his dad, is the one who comes to his back. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal? Will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he's a God, let him contend for himself. What does he say? If Baal's so big and bad, let Baal deal with, with Gideon. If he's a real God, let him deal with it. Because his altar's been brought down. The guy he was probably most terrified of What's dad gonna think is the one who's got his back now. And what we see is for the first time in Gideon's life, really, he's actually having an impact. He's influencing others towards God. And the one he's influencing is the one who was influencing him towards Baal worship. It's just really a great cycle. And so they call Gideon at the end of the chapter. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbabel. They changed his name to, he kicked Baal's tail, basically. Right? Because he broke down his altar. He gets a new name, and we're going to see him called Jerubbabel 
constantly throughout, right? But here's, here's the last piece I want you to see, is that God's presence makes us agents of influence. And, and, uh, and we've come back to this verse a lot in this series, but I think it's significant, right? Acts 1.8, you will receive power, when? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. There's presence. Then what's the result? You will be my witnesses. Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. The result of God's presence in our lives is we are a witness and a testimony to him. And then we have impact and influence back into the world, right? I, I, I don't know your situation. We've all been shaped by experience and, and people and family and friends. But what, what I want you to see is today is an opportunity for God to move on your soul and for you then, the, God's spirit to move in and transform his people. And then we move back into the environment in which we came from and be agents of transformation. That God, by his spirit, puts you there and you start seeing change. Right? That's what the gospel does. It's, a, it's about life change. It's God steps in, transforms a person. They go back in and it's just our E on our specs that we engage the culture for the sake of the gospel. We're not hiding in here like, oh, it's so bad. No, you actually go back out into the culture and you by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you become an agent of change and start seeing transformation with your scad roommates, with those folks in the cubicle down there at that place in your own home. Right? That is what we do. God takes this weak, hiding, beating a little weed out, hiding guy. He's transforming him into a mighty warrior. He makes him adequate. He gives him peace. He helps him to follow. He gives him influence. That's what God wants for his church. That's what God wants for CBC. And it's all because he put us on his team, his presence. We're gonna move to sing and to worship and respond. Here's just a couple questions. You might just respond. And again, we sing after the sermon because we want you to, to think and we want to allow the spirit some time to move and, and for you to reflect. So here's a couple questions you might want to ask yourself. Number one, where do I need to be transformed? Is it my mouth? Is it my activity on my phone? It's the way I talk to my parents, talk to my spouse, my work ethic. You just kind of ask God the Holy Spirit, where do you want to work? And then start, man, you start asking, start moving me. Start reading Bible verses and memorizing Bible verses that deal with that to kind of restore your soul there and renew your mind there. Get people in, hey, could you, could you help me with, I mean, I've just, I just been struggling with X and I want to see God really move. Bring in accountability, bring in community into that piece. Right? We want to be continually transformed. We want to be growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We want to long for the pure milk of the word that by it we may grow in respect of salvation if we tasted the kindness of the Lord. That's what we're constantly wanting to do. So maybe that's a question you ask. Or maybe you could ask, where do I not have peace and why? Why don't I have peace in that? Why don't I have peace there? Maybe it's because you're not taking God at his word. Maybe you're not trusting God in that, right? Um, maybe, what, maybe you ask, where are the idols in my backyard? Is the idol my boyfriend? Is the idol my career? Maybe the idol is your ministry. Maybe it's your job. Maybe your idol, and this is probably true of most of us, maybe your idol is you. We make very bad gods, right? And so just deal with some of these issues. Ask God the Spirit to move, right? And start transforming us from glory to glory to glory until one day he will ultimately, he who began a good work will what? Will complete it in Christ. Once you stand and we'll pray and we'll have the team lead us.